Welcome to the Love Lab Podcast, a safe place to get real about sex. Whether you're a man, woman, single, or couple, this is the show for you. We are your hosts, Kevin Anthony and Celine Remy, and we are here to guide you to go from good to amazing in the bedroom and beyond. All right, welcome back to the Love Lab Podcast. This is episode 153, and it's titled How to Stop Obsessing Over Your Ex with Tess Brigham. So this this is going to be an interesting one. I Maybe some of my exes will disagree. I don't think I have ever obsessed over <laughs> any of my exes, although I definitely had an ex or two obsess over me. <laughs> and I can say we know a lot of people that obsess over their exes. Like this is not something that only happens every once in a while. We have counseled many a friend on this, not to mention client as well. So I think that there's a huge need to understand how you can stop doing this, maybe some more positive behaviors that you could engage in. And we're going to dive deep into that. And, you know, I, as always, I, of course, I always suggest that our listeners kind of stick around and listen to the whole thing. But, you know, even if you're in a relationship now and you're thinking like, ah, oh, whatever, like I'm in a relationship, you might still learn something because there's going to be some some talk about behaviors that aren't just for when you break up. <laughs> Maybe some things that you want to incorporate into your daily routine. Absolutely, like emotional intelligence and attachment styles and all right. of this. So we will cover all of that. You know, when you mentioned that, I don't think I've ever obsessed over an ex either, but I had a one person that I felt really heartbroken um, but I didn't like go crazy because I never wanted to be that woman. <laughs> so I did my own like healing on myself. Like I was doing my crying and stuff on my own, but it's not like I like stalked him or anything. And it was kind of before social media, you know, so it's not that I had an opportunity to track what he was doing. So that probably helped too. Oh, we're going to get into that today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's give a big shout out to our sponsors, Power and Mastery. So if you want to join the secret club of men who are great in bed, then check out Power and Mastery at powerandmastery.com. It is the most complete sexual mastery training for men. Whether you want to have harder erections, last longer, or increase your sexual skills, there is something for you at powerandmastery.com. Our guest today is dubbed the Millennial Therapist by CNBC. Tess Brigham specializes in helping millennials discover the unique life path. She offers individuals concrete tools and skills on navigating obstacles in their lives when feeling lost. Tess is a vital resource for those who may be feeling stuck, uninspired, or uncertain by where they are in their life. She brings her experience within the worlds of psychotherapy and coaching together to work with young adults on relationships, mental health, and career development. Welcome, Tess, to the Love Lab podcast. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? We are good. And how on earth did you become an expert (laughs) in the subject? You dubbed the millennial therapist. I mean, obviously, you probably don't just work with the millennials, and it will apply to everyone. But how did you become an expert in the subject? Well, I say that millennials found me. Um, so I, about 10 years ago, I opened a, um, a practice in downtown San Francisco and I didn't quite know who I would show up at that time. And it was young adults, mainly 25, 26, 27 year olds. 
Um, you know, now millennials are getting older, but at that time I was like, oh, these are these millennials I had heard so much about. <laughs> um, and I realized like, oh, wait, you're not entitled. You're not lazy. You're not, you know, you, you all don't think you're a special snowflake. That's not really what's going on here. There was a real disconnect between, um, you know, what it was like to be a young person at that time and how, what it's like to be a young person now and what the advice, the help, the guidance, the support we were giving young people. It felt very much stuck in a world that didn't take into account social media or the internet or what it's like to grow up with all of these things. Um, so that's when I really started studying young adults, millennials, this generation, how all of these things like the internet and the ability to gather information really quickly um, and social media, how that impacts young people and how they see the world. And that's how it all kind of started from there. Um, you know, that's what CNBC decided to call me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I primarily work with young people trying to figure out who they are, what they want, what life's all about, trying to figure out their true self, their true you, um, and trying to navigate this time of your life. So that really brings us perfectly into the next question, because you're really talking about figuring out millennials and, you know, what they want in life and all that. And, and the next question that we had was whether or not you see a difference between the generations and how they handle breakups. So since we're, we're primarily talking in this episode about how to not obsess over your ex or basically how to, how to properly handle a transition or a breakup in a relationship... So since you've been studying and working with this particular generation for so long, do you see differences between them and other generations? Yeah, definitely. I see a lot of differences. I think, I mean, I think at the core, right, we, we, we slap labels on things and at the core, we're all human and that, you know, breakups and are incredibly difficult. And we talked earlier, we're talking about obsession and obsessing, but I do think that there is, and it's hard if there is a fine line between obsession and, you know, healthy heartbreak and, and what that looks like. But Yes, at the core, we all struggle with heartbreak at, you know, in the same way. It affects the same parts of our brains. It affects us in the same manners. I think what's so different about these younger generations is, is that social media makes it really easy to makes it really easy to stay attached to an ex or stay attached to someone that you've had what they call a situationship, right? Where it's friends with benefits, or if it's like we hung out a few times or we dated for a little while, but we were never official, those kinds of things that I always talk about, like when I was young, when I was in my twenties, it was like, if you don't see anyone, it, it basically means like, you know, you just don't, you don't see them. You'd have to drive by their house or where they worked, or you'd have to like, you know, really become obsessive to figure out what they're doing and what's going on. I think today it is so easy to just keep following your ex. You don't even really have to follow them. I mean, all you have to do is kind of just go on their, you know, Insta stories or, you know, go on their feed and start. And very, and I think that what becomes very innocent for some people becomes, you know, you're two or three hours in and you realize that you've deep dived into every single post that they've had and what each trying to analyze what each word means. And I think that part is really hard is at your, our fingertips, these phones that we have allow us to sort of get stuck and stay in the past 
in a particular relationship with someone. So do you usually recommend then when someone's going through a transition that they, you know, either unfriend the person or like separate digitally as well as physically? I mean, is that something that they should do? Oh yeah. Yeah. Big time. That's a big part of it. it. I definitely think if you're broken up with someone that you, you need to at least, you know, mute them. Doesn't mean that you can't go back and see it. I mean, you could very easily go back around and see it, but I think that's a part of the process is, you know, unfriending them, muting them and, and not, you know, when you're in those low points, not go to, oh, I'm going to get back on Instagram and start to search for them again and try to figure out what's going on in their life. So here's another follow-up question to that, which is, (laughs) so if you recommend that to clients, how many of them actually do it? (laughs) Um, I think that it is like any other habit. It is you sort of say, yes, I'm going to do it. And you go (laughs) and you do it and you purge. And then a week or two later, you're in a low spot or having a hard time and you go back and they might go back to do it. So for the most part, um, when I've given that, those tips, yes, people do it. Have they been able to maintain it? Not always. I think it's, I think it's really hard. And I think it's part of the process, right? It's part of this process of breaking up. And I think that it, there is a correlation between, right? If you've been dating someone for years and years, it is really hard to like, okay, that's it. I've unfriended them now moving on. Um, so no, no one has ever done it perfectly, but I the, the people that I've seen that have been most successful in being able to move forward have done those things. So you mentioned something about the things that happen in your brain when you break up. You, you mentioned it earlier. And I'm curious, like what happens? Uh, is there like a pattern we tend to go through? Is it kind of like grief where there's like seven steps that you go through? Have you found that with a transition or a breakup, people tend to go through things? And are there specific patterns to look for or, or, or behaviors that can happen or brain chemistry that's being released that we need to watch for? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when we first meet someone awesome and we fall in love, right. We get, it's, it's a drug. We get a big hit of dopamine in our brains and that's the same. That's what's in narcotics. This is what, right. And like, this is what people, why people love, love and chase love. And certainly when we're the relationships ended, right. All of that good dopamine is, is been taken away and it's hard, you know, you, you, so it's very easy for people to want to get like these little hits of dopamine and, and, and um, their serotonin and, and all of that, because, you know, there, that's that sadness, but yes, any, any transition that we go to go through, there is a grieving process. And I know that a lot of people feel like we compare the actual death of a loved one to like a divorce and that kind of loss. And, and I know that people who have actually, you know, lost a loved one, they feel like, you know, a divorce isn't a death, but, you know, a divorce is, and any kind of breakup is a type of loss. And while it is, maybe the grief is maybe not as strong as the actual death of a loved one, you do experience these stages of grief, which are, um, you know, denial and then anger and then bargaining or like, you know, uh, sadness and then acceptance. And, um, 
those are the five major stages of grief. And what I always tell people is whether you're grieving for someone who's um, that you've broken up with or a loss, they never go perfectly in these five stages. You never go right from <laughs> denial to anger to bargaining. It's like people seem to think like, okay, what stage am I in? It's you go from anger to sadness, back to anger, sadness, bargaining back to, oh, I've accepted it. No, I'm angry again. No, I'm <laughs> sad again. Right. Like people, people, it isn't this linear line. It's all of these feelings that we feel. Um, and, that it's okay. And there's times certainly with anything with a breakup where you'll have um, two or three, four days, weeks where you're great. And then all of a sudden, boom, something hits you and you feel like, oh, what's wrong with me? Why am I, you know, it's like, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing. It doesn't mean that you can't move on. It, it's just, it's sad when something that was really, that was nice, that gave you all that good dopamine is gone. It really is. And I think that we tend to put a lot of pressure on ourselves for things to be very black and white. Like I'm in love with you or I'm not in love with you, or I, you know, we're together, we're not together. And it's like, you know, things aren't that, that simple and that any relationship that we're in, whether it lasted a few days or, you know, years and years is significant. So part of it is not being so tough on ourselves about how we process these feelings. Yeah, absolutely. And so that leads me perfectly to the next question, which is, what's the number one mistake that people make when they're trying to get over their ex? Um, I think the biggest mistake is they stay in, and I know it's hard, which is they get very caught up in all of the good right? There was a reason why it didn't work. There was a reason why it wasn't working. And even if you really, really liked the person and you only saw great things about them, like you didn't think because it was a very early in a relationship and you guys broke up and you didn't see, there's nothing wrong with them. I do think that then it comes back to, you know, you then have to be able to say to yourself, while I may think this perfect person is absolutely perfect, they're so great in so many ways, they don't really want to be with me. And so I need to choose someone who wants to be with me. You know, I need to be with someone who is going to accept me for me. And while they may seem like a great person, you know, I deserve to be with someone who actually wants to be with me. And I think that part is really hard for people. We dwell a lot on the um, they were so wonderful and great. There's something inherently wrong with me and I'm never going to be happy again. Attitude. Interesting. So I guess there is a difference, right? Between the person who's basically being dumped and the one who, <laughs> exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> and the one who makes the decision, right? Because it's probably easier for the one I'm imagining that the one who's made the decision already ran through the grieving process while in the relationship, because that's usually how it goes. You're getting ready to break up with somebody, at least that's how I've done it. And by the time I broke up with the person, I'm pretty much over the person. Now, if the other one, it comes out of left field, it could be very much different, right? And maybe yeah. they have to go through that whole process. But yeah, that's, so there is a difference, right? If you're the one who called in the, the breakup or versus if you're the one who just got surprised by it. <laughs> Yes, yes. And I think there is also right the the person who is the person who is more attached, more in love, more whatever like they are. I mean, if if you were just casually dating someone and you had a couple dates and you're like, "Oh, I like them. They were great, but it's not really going to work." And that person 
really liked you, you know, really was picturing themselves with you, then yeah, there is a huge difference between the two for sure. But yeah, you're right. Because the person who breaks up um, has been thinking about this, has been mentally preparing for this, has some sort of idea versus the person who maybe was bebopping along and was blindsided. Though I think if you ask anybody, I mean, unless you're dating like a complete con person, I mean, I think people know, right? Like mm-hmm. this relationship isn't working. Things aren't gelling. They're they're getting more and more distant. This is what's happening. I mean, I think that usually once people stop and look back, they realize like, oh, wow, this was moving in a bad direction. Yeah, but a lot of it, I think, is is kind of what you talked about earlier, which is what they choose to focus on. In other words, the person that is going through the grieving process because they were surprised by it and didn't want to break up, they were focusing on all the good things in the relationship, right? Mm-hmm. But the person who made the decision to leave the relationship most likely was focusing on all the, all the bad things, the things that weren't working, right? Because that's mm-hmm. what led them to make the decision to begin with. Yes. Yeah. So you- Most likely, yeah. You mentioned about the person who's more attached. So tell us maybe a little more about the the science behind attachment. We've made a whole show on attachment style, so we don't have to Mm -hmm. go into that. But I know that uh, in our... um, Prior to our call, you were mentioning about some juicy pieces of the science of attachment and and elements that you wanted to bring in. So maybe talk talk to us more about this. Yeah, I mean, I'm not quite sure... Um, in terms of, I mean, you know, there are some people who are very, very um, um, well-versed in attachment and attachment styles. Um, but I, you know, the, for the basics of it is, is that, you know, with attachment and attachment theory, there is this belief that we, um, that we will replay, you know, our particular attachment styles with people from birth. So depending on the kind of parent we have, and our relationship with the parent and what was going on with the parent at the time when we were young and and also how parents and children connect in general, that we will replay in our personal relationships, our romantic relationships, this particular attachment style. And so what I find really fascinating about just this topic when we talk about um, obsessing about your ex is, is that you know, there is definitely a certain attachment style that seems to happen that happens when people are, um, people that there is one person that's obsessed, which is this anxious and avoidant attachment, which I'm sure you guys Mm -hmm. talked about in your, right. And I think this is what I see a lot of is that the person who's obsessed is the action anxious attachment and the person who they're obsessing after is avoidant. And it doesn't, just because you're anxious in one relationship doesn't mean that you're anxious across the board. I think that's one thing just for people to understand is, is that certain people bring out certain attachment styles. So if you meet someone who's, you know, got a very secure attachment, you can become a securely attached person. But what I've seen over the years is you get the sort of classic avoidant type of person who is just like their name says, avoidant. Avoidant in the sense of you don't really know, like the avoidant um, attachment is someone who, you know, will say they're going to call on a Tuesday and then you don't hear from them till Wednesday morning with an excuse, right? Um, 
they then show up for the date on Thursday, but then, you know, cancel last minute on the date on Saturday. Like, so what's happening for the other person is they're constantly unsure of what's it going to be? Like, are they going to show up? Are they not going to show up? If I text you, will you text me back? Right. That avoidant person is constantly um, giving you a little bit and then pulling back, giving you a little bit and pulling back. And I think what happens a lot of times is for the anxious person is that they start to think that that avoidant person is like the avoidant person has made themselves so interesting. So kind of, you know, they're interesting and they're difficult to figure out and it's a bit of a mystery. And suddenly when they do text you, when they say they're going to text you, you know, that becomes this validation of, oh, I am liked, I am special, you know, what I'm doing is right. And then when they avoid you again in some way, shape or form, (laughs) again, you're back to, oh, I did something wrong. So this is something I need to change. And what I see a lot of times is people who become incredibly attached to what the avoidant person is doing and they're thinking that it's love. They're Mm -hmm. thinking that this is, you know, this is what love is. Love is complicated and difficult and I never know when to, what to expect from you. And, um, and I think that, that what happens along the way is, is that people start to forget or they start to, you know, start to, they almost forget, or they just don't even know like, oh, you know, a healthy, secure attachment or relationship is the person shows up when they say they're going to show up. They do what they're supposed to do. And they are easy. And they are easy. Yes. Yes. Relationship is something I'm big on. And we talk about this a lot. Like people think that relationship are supposed to be hard, hard work and messy. And I'm like, hard work is in your freaking business. It's not in your relationship, your relationships. Well, I'm not saying you don't have ups and downs or challenges, but the, the big part of it should be rewarding, supportive, easy, effortless, filled with joy and love. <laughs> yeah. So don't, don't go find your partner. Don't be attracted to somebody because of the mystery, as yes. you put it. Mm, yes. I can't figure that them out. If you can't figure them out now, you probably won't be able to figure them out later. And that's going to drive you fucking crazy. So. Yeah. yeah and, and what's happening is, is that you're getting those dopamine hits, right? You're getting, it becomes a drug. It's mm. like, you're getting a hit of like, Ooh, they texted. Ooh, I'm getting a dopamine hit. That feels good. There feels, there's that piece of it. And then, you know, they, they're withdrawing, 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 and then it, they come back along and Ooh, that feels, that feels really good. And so that's the piece that I think is really important for people to understand is, is that don't, you know, really look at the person and their behaviors, you know, do their words match their actions? Mm -hmm. How do you feel when you are with them? Not, it's not about how you feel like when they text you out of the blue, Mm -hmm. it's about how do you feel about yourself and how this person treats you? Um, Because any time that I've had a client in this particular situation, when we really break it down to, you know, are you happy? Are you satisfied? You know, is this making you feel good about yourself? They always come back to, no, none of it feels good. None of it's fun. Not one of it. But there is always this, that the the avoidant person, you know, the avoidant attachment person really has a hold on the other person because they've developed this cycle that is so hard to break. 
Mm, that was really good explanation. So we're going to get into some solutions and other stuff in just a few seconds. Uh, but before that, we're going to make a little break for our sponsor ad. So this is an invitation for all the committed couples who are listening and who are stuck in a rut and not just going through the daily motions instead of connecting the way that they used to. So if you're thinking about maybe transitioning, but maybe not, and you are tired of style, stale mechanical sex that lacks spontaneity and fun, and you don't want to live a life of average, then Kevin and I would like to invite you to join our highly sexed Power Couple Platinum program. So if you give us 90 days, we will help you bring the passion back between the sheets and be synced up sexually so that you can thrive with more purpose and passion in life. For more about our program, go to selinremy.com forward slash passion. All right. Well, we are having a great discussion and we still have a bunch of questions. (laughs) I don't know that we're going to be able to squeeze them all in, but there are definitely a couple of things that we wanted to touch on. So you mentioned earlier, uh, more back towards the beginning of the podcast, uh, you mentioned the word situationships. And so we wanted to kind of talk about that a little bit. So our question was, you know, you talk about relationships not really being relationships and more situationships. So can you explain to listeners what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, and this is, I did not coin this term. This is sort of <laughs> like a, a one of these millennial terms that I've learned over the years, but basically it's any kind of um, situation. It's, it's a relationship that you're in that is undefined. So it is the, you know, you're never, you've never declared yourself as a couple. You've never labeled the relationship in any way, shape or form. And it's really reserved for these kinds of very casual hookups of we went on two or three dates. Maybe we slept together once, or maybe we hook up here and there when we see each other, but it's never more than that. Or maybe every time I travel to your state, I see you and and that's it. Right. So it's, 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 it is, it's not a firm relationship, but it is this situation that you're in, I guess, is a best way of describing it. Because I, I, I do think that this idea of people call like friends with benefits and some of these other things, I, I do think that people have, I think they do have connections with other people that go beyond um, you know, like this idea that you're just hooking up and that's the extent of the relationship. Like you are doing things together, you're talking, you're laughing, you're connecting and sex is a part of it, but you're never officially dating. And so it is, it's this weird kind of gray area where there is something there, there is a connection. It's just that both people don't want to have a relationship with the other person at this time. One person might, the other person might not. See, now I'm feeling old. <laughs> <laughs> that's not how I would have defined it. Like, it, I didn't really know what it was. It's one of the reasons why we asked, you know? Uh-huh. So I just think it's kind of funny because like, to me, when I'm thinking situationship, I'm thinking like one of the things that we see a lot with people that we work with are couples that have been together for a long time and they're not really interacting in an intimate way anymore. And I don't mean mm-hmm. just sex, but just, you know, your, your, even your day-to-day intimacy. They, they become more like roommates, right? Where they're mm-hmm. just kind of going through the motions, taking care of the kids. You do this, I do that. And that to me is what I, I was thinking maybe a situationship would be. I had no idea, actually, that it's... Because, <laughs> it's, you know, when I was younger, basically you were just in a relationship or if you were really lucky, well, I, I say this... If you were not in a relationship 
and you were lucky enough to have a friend with benefits at the time. That's what we would call it. Like we we didn't call it anything other than that. You're in a relationship or you're not, basically. Mm-hmm. So you're I find aging that, yourself, Kevin. I know, I know. Uh, you know, you're not a millennial like me. Oh, you're barely a millennial. <laughs> but I still am. Like the first year they decided to call them millennials. Yeah, but I still make the cuts. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tess. Um, so when you describe this, to me, I'm thinking, but it's this is easy. If you're in a situationship and it gets over, I mean, tough, tough luck. It's just like move on. That's kind of what I'm thinking. So... Mm-hmm. Obviously, most people don't go through that since they are obsessing and there's still something happening. So I think maybe this would be a good place to talk a little bit about emotional intelligence, about like, okay, what is it? And uh, like why you should increase it? Because obviously, in my opinion, if you have a good EQ, uh, then you're going to take those situationship transition much easier than if you don't. Yes, for sure. I mean, I I think it's a combination of things. I think it is EQ, but it's also, to me, I feel like some of it is maturity and life experience and, um, and, you know, I I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I remember being in my twenties and probably then I don't know what I would call it, but I guess now, as I look at it, it was kind of sort of dating, kind of sort of a situationship, you know, that I remember having and feeling like, um, that it was, you know, significant. And I think at the time, um, it was, you know, at the time looking back, I think that, um, my lack of maturity was the thing that was really holding me back from really understanding how to ask for what I need and want and what I deserve. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, and, and part of getting older and maturing is, you know, developing better EQ around like how you, how you see yourself, how you live your life. Um, and that is, I mean, to me, when I think about EQ, like the real, the core cornerstone of it is around self-awareness and being aware of not only awareness around yourself, your thoughts, your feelings, your actions, but also, you know, how, um, how you treat other people and how other people treat you and the boundaries that you set up for yourself. And, you know, when you have good awareness of your thoughts and feelings and what you want, you're able to better understand, like, what are my boundaries around what it is that I want and need and how to ask for them. And so I think that's one of the things about being young that's really hard is, is that, you kind of go out into the world and it is really hard. You have to first learn how to become more aware of yourself and ask yourself these questions of what is it that I want? And then, and then figure out like, how do I ask for those things? And I think that especially, I think for women, you know, we're really taught, you know, be nice, don't rock the boat, don't ask for too much, don't demand so much, be quiet, you know, those things while things are changing, it's that it's so ingrained in how we were raised and how we see ourselves that I think for especially women, they have a really hard time like setting boundaries and asking like, oh, wait a second. You know, I, I want to be in a relationship with someone who actually wants to show up for me and I need to ask for that. And I need to sit and be okay with the fact that this person might say no. And yeah, that sucks. It's hard, but I also need to, you know, then I need to move forward. 
Yeah, and so I, I like how you make the distinction between the EQ and just simply lack of maturity and, and experience in life. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I like that is because people can still have a lot of experience and quote-unquote maturity and still not have a very high EQ. <laughs> <laughs> we see them all the time. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so part of it when, when dealing with younger generations, part of it is they simply haven't been around long enough. They haven't had enough relationships. They haven't had enough good role models to teach them how to behave in a relationship. So they simply don't know how to do it. Yes. You would expect over time that they would learn enough from each relationship, but that's not necessarily the case either, in which case they also have to work on developing that EQ. So in other words, it's not a foregone conclusion that just because you're older now, you suddenly figured it out and know how to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It's that piece of how do you take what you learned from the first relationship? How do you look at that, become more aware what worked, what didn't work? What's my role in all of this? What's my part of it? What was their part? Okay, how, you know, what do I need to do differently? Oh, okay. You know, that's, yeah, that is part of that is maturity. And part of it is having high EQ is the willingness and desire to do the work to figure out like, how do I do this differently? Yeah. And I, you know, I would say for, for anybody young who's listening to this, that piece right there is huge, right? Because nobody expects you to know everything right from the start. You know, and this is one of the reasons why I think it's such a good idea for young people to date a bunch of different people because, and I don't mean necessarily at the same time, but you know, the idea is that you learn from each one of them, you learn more and more. You can learn in in a single relationship also, so I, I don't want to exclude that. But the idea is that nobody expects you to know everything. What we expect is that you can do what you just said, which was have the self-awareness. Look at both yourself and the relationships you've been in and figure out what worked and what didn't work and then try to do better the next time. Mm -hmm. So Tess, do you have some tips that you can give our listeners who right now are struggling to get over the X? Is there a one, two, three step? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, I would say, you know, first step is always, and this is what I always recommend to all my clients, which is, you know, you have the right to feel whatever you're feeling. You have the right to feel sad. Um, You have the right to feel disappointed that this relationship didn't work out. You have the right to feel whatever it is that you're, you're feeling. And if you allow yourself to feel sad, like I think that one thing that I see a lot of is there's a lot of this idea of like, oh, well, go ahead and dump him. You're a queen. You don't need this. You know, you're better off without him. You know, all of those things, those things might be true, but you still have the right to feel sad feel disappointed. So feel your feelings, always allow yourself to feel your feelings. And as I talked about earlier, grief and, and, and transitions and all of those things, absolutely like allow yourself to feel all those things and recognize that, you know, there really is no such thing as true closure. You're always going to love that person a little bit. You're always going to have some feelings for them, even though they're not going to be in your life day to day. But I would start with that. I think that if you feel like you're moving into that obsession piece of it, I think you need to check yourself a little bit and think back to this idea of dopamine and drugs because, and really think about it as, you know what, this person is becoming a bit of a drug for me. And the best way to handle that is to just cut it off completely. So get off of social media, get off of their social media, you know, um, don't, uh, you know, create some safeguards for yourself to, um, you know, like 
announce to your friends and say, I'm not going to get on social media or I'm not going to get on and follow that person, you know, um, please keep me accountable or, you know, have two or three things that you're going to do as opposed to reaching out to them or as opposed to getting on social media and following them. Um, you know, I would, you know, say, okay, I'm going to journal for five minutes or I'm going to meditate or I'm going to go exercise or I'm going to go do all of these things. And then I'll reassess and see if I want to do that, go back and and reach out to the person. Um, and then I would really focus on what didn't, you know, what wasn't, what wasn't, you know, see the person as a whole person, which is, it wasn't all good. It wasn't all bad. It was, it was good and bad. And, and right now it's not going to work and being able to not get caught up in the, Oh my God, we were so perfect. And Oh, it was such this, like really truly see them as um, a full complete person with flaws. And then it always comes back to you being able to, once you've gotten through the grief, which is and this is this EQ part, which is what do I learn from it? Like, how do I, how do I take what I've learned about myself, about relationships, about, you know, the kinds of people that I'm attracted to and who I'm dating, you know, what do I take from all of this? And, and what do I learn for myself around what is it that I'm really looking for? You know, what is it that I really want? And I, and I'll have my clients like really think, you know, and write out that list of who is the person that I want. It's not like you're then spending the rest of your life going, okay, I want to meet, you know, this blonde hair, blue eyed, six foot, you know, um, Adonis and you, you walk around like that, but it's more about really getting crystal clear on, you know, I want someone who makes me laugh every day. I want someone who, you know, is, um, you know, who's intelligent, who can talk about certain things and getting really clear on what are the values and beliefs? Like, what are your priorities right now for a relationship? So that when you do meet someone that you are able to say, you know what, this person is really awesome and they're great, but they don't make me laugh every day. And that's really important to me. I don't want, you know, I want to be with someone who does that. And as great as they are, I've got to kind of like stop trying to make this relationship work and focus on what will make it work for me. Because it is, it's part of dating and relationships and all that it is going out and seeing what's out there. And at the same time, it's also about learning how to say, okay, this isn't right for me. And I've got to trust that if I say no to this, something better, you know, something more that aligns with me will come along. And I think that part is, it's also hard when you're young too, because there's a lot of fear around, well, what if, what if I never pick any, you know, what if no one comes along? And I think that 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 does create a lot of concern for people. And it's easier when you're married and on the other side of it to say someone will, but I do, I understand that fear around it, but it's really about how do you want to spend your days? You know, do you want to spend your days with someone who you kind of sort of like, or do you want to spend your days with someone that you really, really like that you enjoy and that will make you laugh, you know, 20 years, 20 years later. Yes, absolutely. I love that idea of making the list. That's actually something that we, uh, Basili and I, have both done in the past. I had a very detailed list before we met. <laughs> and, and even, you know, these years later, you know, when, when something comes up like a particular trait or something that I appreciate about her, she'll, she'll look at me and she'll go, was that on the list? <laughs> 
And you know, uh, some of them were on the list, and actually, there's a whole bunch that weren't on that list. But if I ever had to make a new list, they would be now. (laughs) This was awesome, Tess. Uh, Such great advice there that I recommend listening to again. Where can people find more about you and, of course, work with you if they feel like they need that extra accountability and support? Yeah, so the best way to find me is to just go to my website, tessbrigham.com. You can uh, sign up to talk with me. And I am launching um, in the next couple months. I'm going to have, um, I'm revamping my website. I'm going to be launching some courses and products and all of that. So you can just get on my mailing list. I send out a newsletter every week. It's Sunday mornings with Tess. <laughs> so it's a way of like starting your week off right and being able to do that. But, um, and then I'm also on Instagram, Tess underscore Brigham. And I give a lot of great free information there, tips and um, inspiration and a lot of these tips and tools and tricks and all that kind of stuff. That's a big part of what I do is I, um, I love to make it practical for people to be able to implement it into their own lives. So. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And we'll have, of course, all the links in the description. Before we go, we have our very last question that we love to ask our guests. Tess, what is your best sexual talent? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I've been married like 18 years. I'm just like, I have to think this through a little bit. Because I'm trying to think about how I was pre-married. This is going to discourage people. Um... Well, don't don't let it discourage you because she must be doing something, right? She's still married. <laughs> I'm still married. Well, get my husband back here. Um, oh my gosh, I think um, I have to say that I think that I am. Oh God, I do. I think I am a good kisser. I think that I I <laughs> I've kissed a lot of frogs, but I do. <laughs> I have to go with that one. I know it's not as adventurous as maybe some other people's, but it's, I do think that after you've been married a long time, this is something that a lot of people stop doing is you stop kissing your partner. You stop doing the kiss. Hello, kiss goodbye. Especially now with pandemic, like, you know, you never leave. So, and I do, I think this is really important and something that my husband and I do try to do. And there's science behind the six second kiss that it creates, it releases that oxytocin, you know, all that good stuff in your body. But I do, I think that that is a big part of um, keeping things interesting and having that connection, even when you've got kids and dogs and all that other kind of stuff. So. I'm going to go awesome. with that. <laughs> that was awesome. There's no right or wrong answer. We yeah. always love hearing what people come up with. And you gave some great suggestions to our listener. And as soon as we're done, we're going to kiss again. Yeah. We kissed before the show, but I'm like, there's some more coming. <laughs> well, Tess, thank you for coming on the show. That was some great advice. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. All right, everybody, that's all the time we have for this episode, and we will see you next week. (music) 
We hope you like this episode of the Love Lab podcast. If you enjoy this show, subscribe, leave us a review, and share it with your friends. And for more free, exclusive content, join us in the Passion Vault at CelineRemy.com forward slash vault. That's C-E-L-I-N-E-R-E-M-Y dot com forward slash vault. Thanks for listening. And remember, you're amazing. <laughs>